Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Now, coming up on today's programme, if your 2022 plans include any type of pitch, whether it's business, political or personal, then please stay tuned because we're going to be joined from New York by the prolific journalist and award-winning author Frank Rose. He's here to talk to us today about his new book, The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. Today also, whistleblowing is acknowledged as one of the most effective ways of stopping wrongdoing when it comes to financial corruption and corporate fraud. So today on Taking Stock, we're going to take a look at the issue of wrongdoing in financial institutions and speak to an expert who says that there should be payback for whistleblowers. And later on in the programme, we'll examine one of the biggest corporate cases in American history, which was exposed in the first instance by a whistleblower. It ultimately led to the downfall of Elizabeth Holmes, who was once hailed as the next Steve Jobs and cited by Forbes magazine as the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. This week, she was convicted by a jury in California on four counts of fraud and faces over 20 years in prison. But first up today, we're joined now from New York by Frank Rose. He's the best-selling author and a regular contributor to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He's also a senior fellow at Columbia University. In his early career, Frank covered the New York punk scene and in more recent times, he was contributing editor to Wired. And there he focused on the intersection of media and technology and he's profiled communication systems and subcultures in a way that I find not only enlightening, but is always way ahead of the curve. He's written for publications that range from Vanity Fair to Rolling Stone and he joins us now to talk about his new book and it's a must for anyone who's involved in the art of persuasion. It's about how stories work in a data-driven world. Frank, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mandy. Glad to be here. Now, as you well know, here in Ireland, we have a very proud and ancient tradition of storytelling, and there's even a word in the Irish language dedicated to the storyteller. It's Shanachie. So I know that your new book is going to be of particular interest to our audience here in Ireland. I've read it. It's fabulous. Uh, But can you Tell our listeners, what is The Sea We Swim In about and why did you choose that as your title for your latest book? Right. Uh, No, great question. So The Sea We Swim In is really about the idea that uh, we are all storytellers in the digital world. It used to be that we were consumers, that we were supposed to be consumers. We were supposed to sit back and watch the TV or read the newspaper or read the book and, and not have anything else to do with it. That idea has been, you know, sort of superseded in the digital age by the realization that this is not how we deal with media at all. This is not how we deal with stories. We deal with stories by, uh, you know, processing them in a way that, uh, you know, reflects our own identity and uh, our own sense of uh, what is happening in the world. And so, that means that we need to know how stories work. We need to know, uh, in particular, how to make them work for us. As for the title, the title was really inspired by uh, a, a comment in a book by Jerome Bruner. 
Uh, Bruner, of course, was one of the leading psychologists of the 20th century. He was a uh, he he was one of the founders of cognitive psychology uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And during the 80s, he uh, developed a real interest in stories and how they work. And at that point, there was a sense among scientists, among psychologists, uh, that there was no point in studying stories, that stories were kind of cheap and tawdry, and they were just about Mm -hmm. entertainment, and they weren't worthy of scientists' uh, investigations. And that turns out to be exactly wrong. What Bruner said was that we're like the proverbial fish who doesn't understand water because it's all around them. And that's what stories are like. Uh, Stories are part of our existence. They're a key part of our existence. They're everywhere we look and everywhere we go. And that indeed was the theme for your previous book, The The Art of Immersion, where you stated that not long ago, and it's right, we were spectators, passive consumers of mass media, but now we immerse ourselves in the narratives um, and it's that personal emotional connection that drives consumption, really. So we're, we're living in a narrative and, and the Internet is the place where this all takes place now. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, what I was trying to do with the art of immersion was to document uh, you know, how stories are changing in response to digital technology. It turns out that uh, if you look at it, you realize that every time a new major communications medium comes along, such as, you know, television or, or radio or motion pictures, or if you go back a long way, uh, print, that every time this happens, it takes people at least 30 or 40 or sometimes 50 years or more, to figure out what to do with it. And uh, we're in the midst of that process now. Uh, we're, we're trying to understand how digital technology uh, works. It's changing constantly. It's giving us new opportunities. Uh, and we need to develop what is essentially uh, a mode of storytelling, a form of storytelling that's native to digital in the same way that, um, you know, say a two-hour or so feature film is native to the movies. When the motion picture camera was invented around 1890, uh, there was no way of dealing with, uh, you know, the idea that you could do everything that we now take for granted as part of the grammar of cinema, like cuts and pans and fades and so forth. Uh, the, all of that had to be invented. And that's sort of where we are now. Just to pick up on the point you said there about where we're at in the learning cycle of the digital age, I heard it once uh, very aptly described by somebody at a conference. They said that if this were newspapers, we'd still be at the phase where we're throwing the papers up the driveway from bicycles. So we're very early on in our kind of understanding of the capacity and the reach of of digital. But one of the things that struck me throughout the book is this dichotomy or struggle, if you like, between 
statistics versus storytelling. And you say that the right story can open up a person's heart and change their mind far more effectively than any argument or set of data. Now, my background is political and corporate communications. I spent my life trying to convince people of that. And you explain it beautifully in the book. Can you tell us why you believe it's stories, not statistics that make people sit up and pay attention? Uh, well, thank you for that. Uh, I believe that that is uh, that's the way things work because, well, partly from personal experience and partly because there's now a great deal of uh, psychology and cognitive science research uh, to back that idea up. You know, it turns out that when you uh, present people with facts, uh, the natural reaction is sort of you know, oh yeah, is that really true? People are skeptical. Whereas when you tell them a story, there's a tendency to, uh, you know, at least for the moment, uh, sort of accept the basic premises of the story is true. And uh, the further uh, reason for this is that uh, stories are, stories appeal to the emotions. They affect us emotionally. And that turns out to be a much more effective way to reach people than through logic, through reasoning, which, frankly, uh, you know, it's something that is very much to be desired, but it's not our natural state. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to the best-selling author, Frank Rose, from New York. No, and, and the book itself is a sort of um, a set of guiding tools and principles about how you can construct and, and what are the key components of good storytelling. And I know it's, it's a lot to try and put into a few minutes, but could you just give us a bird's eye view of um, what they are, please? I teach a course at Columbia, an executive education program called Strategic Storytelling. And in the uh, course of um, developing this, I came up with what I consider to be the nine key elements of stories. And the most fundamental, the sort of top three, if you will, are the author, the audience, and the journey. It may seem obvious, but uh, we so often tend to forget uh, you know, who are we? Why are we telling this story? What is our, you know, what do we hope to gain from it? Uh, who is our audience? What is going to appeal to them? Because that's ultimately, uh, you know, what is going to make a difference. And what kind of journey are we going to take the audience on? Because that's really what a story is. It's a, it's a, uh, mm. you know, an account that starts in one place and ends in another. And in the middle of all that, things happen, things change, there's conflict, there's, uh, you know, and there, and there has to be some sort of resolution. Beyond that, I think there are certain things that are uh, sort of constants uh, within uh, storytelling, regardless of the medium, regardless of whether it's now or 200 years ago. And there are others that are uh, that we're seeing develop that are uh, native to digital, that are uh, you know relatively unique, and mm. that have changed. Among the constants are, are certainly characterization. Uh, you know, we respond to people, uh, or at the very least, we respond to uh, you know people-like things. <laughs> you mm. know, if they're robots, if they're animals, it really doesn't matter. And we respond to the voice of the uh, 
of the author, of the person who is telling the story. And everybody has a unique voice, and every organization as well has a unique voice. And one of the things that we really have to do as a storyteller is to understand what that voice is. Beyond that, there are certain things that have uh, that have changed. Uh, you know, one is the whole idea of of the setting. It used to be that uh, you know the setting was just something we took for granted. We read about it or we watched it or whatever, and that was fine. But it turns out that much of the research that has gone into uh, understanding stories and storytelling in the last twenty or thirty years. Uh, that really much of that has to do with the fact that we understand stories by projecting ourselves into them imaginatively. We find a character that we like or that we respond to or that we don't like. Uh, you know, anti-heroes are, are you know, yeah. uh, always, uh, always with us. And, you know, so we find this character and we identify with him or her and we, you know, tend to project ourselves into the story in that way. Yeah, and, and uh, the, sure. the the capacity of digital to to provide new worlds has has really changed things for the entertainment sector in that sense, particularly, hasn't it? Yes, it certainly has. It's uh, you know, it's. I mean, there were there were some stories, uh, bef- you know, even before digital that you know that had this effect, like. Uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes or The Lord of the Rings that were, you know, so immersive. But uh, what we're finding now is that any kind of story almost can can be immersive if, uh, you know, if you allow room for the, uh, you know, for the audience to sort of, you know, inhabit the story, so to speak. Yeah, and that, you mentioned earlier business considerations in storytelling, and it's this age-old question, it's logic versus emotion. But what what do you believe actually drives consumer behavior in the end? What can people learn from that notion that we're trying to tap into people's emotion rather than logical and statistical arguments? Well, yes, that's a great question. One of the more interesting things that I've come across is some you know, people have looked at the effectiveness of, say, Super Bowl ads and, you know, other other forms of, uh, you know, video advertisements, video, uh, you know, storytelling that's aimed at getting people to buy something. And, uh, you know, it turns out that when we're presented with a set of facts about, say, a new car that we might want to buy or something like that, uh, you know, if it's just a set of facts that we're presented with, if it's, you know, if we're told about how great its fuel economy is and, you know, all of that sort of thing, the same with tech, uh, you know, it doesn't go anywhere with us. It doesn't take us anywhere. Mm. Uh, whereas stories that, you know, engage us emotionally uh, turn out to be much more effective. Uh, you know, there are other factors as well. You have to be advertising something that people might actually want. Uh, but uh, but this idea of engaging people emotionally is crucial because that's really uh, how we decide whether we want something. The final chapter, uh, Frank, was quite arresting uh, and compared to the rest of the book for me. Um, it focused on things like capital surveillance, which we kind of tend to term as privacy, but it's actually 
capital surveillance and compulsion loops. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Are you fearful about our capacity as societies to resist the pull of the most dangerous stories that are out there? Um, Like, where is this form of storytelling taking us now? Right. Well, that was uh, my main concern there. I really wanted to try to sort that out myself. And I think it's too early to tell. I think there is a a sort of a dangerous, um, you know, undercurrent (laughs) that is taking us into a bad place, whether it's um, a bad place about, uh, you know, are we being told stories that aren't true? That's obviously um, always the case uh, in in some instances, but now we're presented with stories that are obviously false, and yet they have uh, millions of adherents. I mean, I'm thinking about, for an extreme example, the QAnon mm. uh, development, this idea that there is a person called Q uh, who is somewhere embedded in the U.S. government uh, and is telling the truth about all these conspiracies that, uh, that, that nobody else knows about. And, you know, I think that's a very, very dangerous situation. And at the same time that that's happening, there's this realization that, you know, what we thought of 10 or 15 years ago as, you know, sort of fun social media, you know, that type of thing uh, is you know, they're really tracking us, and they are tracking us with the um, intent of finding out as much as they can about us uh, so that they can sell us stuff. And if they're going to, you know, use this to sell us stuff, then there's always the potential that they're going to use it for some other, you know, purpose as well. Uh, And so I think we are at a fairly dangerous place. I'm not, um, you know, I'm I'm quite hopeful that we'll be able to move beyond it. I think we will. I think, uh, you know, we've certainly been in dangerous places before. Um, they've gotten us in trouble, but we have, uh, you know, we have righted ourselves. And there are many ways in which digital uh, technology, digital media are, you know, certainly preferable to what we had before, the sense that we are participants, the sense that we are all participants in storytelling, uh, that we're not a passive audience. That's really important. And, uh, you know, I'm very hopeful that that will prevail and that it will allow us to, uh, you know, deal with um, the sort of dangers of storytelling in an effective way. And of course, we should mention that digital um, networks have also kept us going during the pandemic and provided us with avenues of entertainment and also to continue um, our business affairs. But Frank, I could probably go on talking to you all day about this. Um, It's a fascinating book and it's rare that we leave a review with a recommendation for not just one book, but two from the same author. I would also like to recommend to listeners to check out Frank's previous book, which I mentioned called The Art of Immersion. It's a really great study of how media is reshaping the entertainment, advertising and communications industries. It's an essential read. Frank, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to chat to you. We look forward to more stories from you. (laughs) Terrific. Thank you.
Now, as I said at the outset of the programme, we're going to take a look today at the issue of whistleblowers and their role uh, and the role that they play in, in the corporate world. And sadly, in recent years, many thousands of Irish people have been really badly affected by wrongdoing in the financial services sector. And with a number of key players leaving the Irish market, there might be reduced competition and that might lead to a sharp uh, rise in bad practice. So exposing what goes on behind the scenes is something that we as a nation might need to take a more strategic look at in the future. So I'm joined now to discuss the issue by Vincent Digby, who's Managing Director at Impartial Financial Advice. Vincent, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks for joining us today. Andy, thank you. It's great to be here. So first off, tell us a little bit about yourself, Vincent, your background and the company Impartial.ie. What exactly do they do? Okay, perfect. Uh, background first. Um, I've worked in financial services pretty much all my career. Um, I met my wife in the forerunner of uh, KBC, IIB, when people met the old-fashioned way. Um, then I was at Bank of Ireland for 14 years. It was in Bank of Ireland Global Markets. It was very much trading roles, um, investment markets, capital markets. And my last role in Bank of Ireland was head of funding, um, doing all the capital funding programs for Bank of Ireland, uh, debt marketing, global roadshows and uh, capital market transactions. Then in 2007, in the middle of a recession, myself and my wife decided to set up our business, uh, which is either brave, foolhardy or inspired. Uh, but it's worked out very well. The business has gone from strength to strength and we grow mainly through referrals. Uh, Impartial.ie is a wealth management and financial planning firm. Uh, one of the kind of top tier firms in Ireland, but we're boutique. We're smaller than the big players um, and we specialise in four key areas. Uh, firstly, it would be entrepreneurs, SME owners. You know, they're good at business plans, not so good at personal financial plans and exit strategies. We also work with retirees, helping take the stress out of managing their investments through their retirement. Uh, we also work with a range of um, inheritance tax planning strategies. If we look down the road, it looks like, you know, there may be higher wealth taxes ahead. So it makes sense to plan for that today. And then lastly, we work with a range of vulnerable clients where uh, my wife, Nikki, deals with that. And that would be people who are you know, either through separation, divorce, uh, bereavement, or indeed people who have, you know, unfortunately had medical negligence situations and awards to deal with. OK, so uh, you've got a, a lot of experience in the Irish marketplace. And, and as I alluded to earlier, there's a lot of movement in Ireland at the moment in terms of the financial services sector. Can you talk to us about the factors that might limit the competition in the Irish sector at the moment? Yeah, primarily it's one of the scale. The market's just not big enough to attract, you know, serious foreign players to come in here. So that leaves it open to the domestic larger firms who see this as an opportunity to increase their margins. And that's by, I suppose, you know, you know, I won't call it a cosy cartel, but it's not far off it. You have the, the, the banks and Irish Life as the three main players. Uh, and that genuinely leads to, uh, I suppose, reduced competition, lack of service uh, and, and value then for clients. And clients end up paying for that lack of competition. Yeah, and the lack of competition uh, can bring a lot of bad practice with it if we're not careful to monitor it. And I know that you've done some research about that and we'll talk about that shortly. But one of the issues I wanted you to try and explain to us today is you said that um, incentivised whistleblowing could be a game changer for financial services in the Irish industry. Can you just explain what is incentivised whistleblowing and how does it work? Okay. What we're proposing is to adopt a system that's used in the US. It's been in operation since 2012, whereby, in effect, anyone who identifies wrongdoing can come forward. And if that wrongdoing is proven and there are fines against the, the firm responsible for that wrongdoing, the whistleblower can share up to 30% of the fines that are, that are collected. So therefore, it's self-financing. The, the rewards are paid purely from the fines. 
Now, we have whistleblowing in Ireland currently, and there are, there's legislation to protect whistleblowers. However, there is no financial incentive to do so. Any whistleblower is taking a very significant risk in terms of their career, their prospects, and their family's well-being. So we think it's only fair to introduce incentivised whistleblowing. Okay. Okay, but if you're you're talking about putting that on a statutory footing, there's a a central bank bill that's going through the House of the Oireachtas. Have you tried to engage with the political system to do that? And and what has been your experience there? We're just starting that process now because it always occurred to me that this was a perfect solution to in terms of improving behaviour and culture in financial services, yet there was no vehicle to get it introduced. The central bank framework bill is the ideal chance to have, you know, incentivised whistleblowing added to that. So we're starting the process. Uh, we, you know, and we're reaching out to the members of the Oireachtas uh, Finance, uh, Public Affairs and Reform uh, Committee, uh, the Minister of Finance and others, just to highlight what we see as a very, you know, worthwhile, you know, initiative to improve behaviour and culture in Irish financial services. Yeah, just to be devil's advocate there, if if the government did introduce some legislation that was specific to the financial services sector, are they not just opening up, um, uh, you know, an option for all sectors to do this? There's already an overarching whistleblower's protection. So is that not enough? Are we not undermining the regulations within the individual sectors by doing that? Well, the experience in financial services, you can just look back over, over the years and decades, just how many scandals there has been. And despite best efforts, you know, culture and behaviour hasn't improved sufficiently. If you look at the tracker mortgage scandal, you know, over 40,000 customers were impacted by that. Anyone who's an insurance policy in Ireland is paying higher premiums due to quit insurance and satanic insurance, and that will continue for many, many years. So there's huge widespread impact, primarily around financial services. So I would see financial services being the perfect, you know, first industry to have this applied. And if there's benefit for it to be broadened out, that can be considered later. But for now, I think financial services needs this type of approach. Yeah, and and is there something um, that drives you towards the need for this at this particular moment in time? Are you, as someone who operates in this sector, seeing uh, increases in bad practice at all? Well, if you look at the Financial Service Ombudsman's report every year, there is numerous and rising number of complaints against financial services firms. Uh, personally, I'm not seeing anything in, you know, that I'd say is raising the alarm, but I'm just looking in terms of the past history and track record there's a clear, clear need for this, um, and I think now we've got an opportunity to address it legislatively. Now, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Vincent Digby, who's Managing Director at Impartial Financial Advice. Just to look at that um, commis- uh, the survey that you commissioned, uh, you found 72% of Irish people were in favour of rewarding whistleblowers. Were you surprised at that level of support? Uh, I found it quite high. Is there a danger at all that you'd be creating a- an environment that sort of aims to reward the whistleblowing itself and there's a potential there for maybe frivolous claims? I was. Were you surprised at all at how much support oh, there is? A couple is? of questions there. Firstly, in terms of I was was surprised by the overwhelming level of support. And we used uh, Red Sea to do this independent research because we had a feeling that there was a need here, but we need to gauge the level of public support. Um, As I said, 72% are in favour of that. Uh, And in fairness to Red Sea, they were very clear about in terms of phrasing the questions not to infer or lead any bias into that, Uh, removed any reference to banks in case that was a kind of a negative, you know, association with banks, which might, you know, in some way uh, move the results. But, you know, the results were clear in terms of the... Four key questions. One, 72% of people are in favour of it. Um, We also have in terms of 71% believing it will improve culture and behaviour. And 75% it will lead to quicker identification of wrongdoing, 
and 69% expecting it to lead to faster resolution of wrongdoing. So that would be an ideal you know, solution if in terms of that's what the public wants and I think it behoves our politicians to, to, to implement that. With respect to the frivolous claims, it's a, it's a valid question. We would think frivolous claims can be re easily managed through the process and people who submit frivolous claims can be barred from the process in future. But even, even with that, the public response was, was quite clear that in terms of they had very small amount of people expected there would be frivolous claims on the back of this legislation. So I don't think it's going to be in terms of a, a, a complainer's charter per se. I think people see the, the, the benefits. Now, you mentioned earlier the US, the Security and Exchange Commission regulator there provides for this type of incentives. But is there, is there anything that compares in a European context or any member state in the EU operating something like this? The US is the primary example, you know, the FCA and the UK have looked at it and they kind of saw there was a possibility for perverse incentive, which I couldn't see that their point at all. Uh, we're seeing elsewhere in Australia and Canada and it's beginning to get in some traction elsewhere. And I think, you know, in terms of post-Brexit, I think we could no longer need to take our lead from a regulatory perspective from the UK. And if we think this is a good idea for our citizens, we should fire ahead with it. So as you mentioned earlier, um, we've seen a lot of financial services scandals through the decades and there's one consistent thing is that mm -hmm, there's yeah. very intelligent people behind the scenes who are well equipped to hide these. Can you just talk to us about um, what's the experience of a whistleblower at the moment uh, now? Have you any kind of evidence about it being negative? How forthcoming are people to, yeah. to kind of take on this role? Well, you're right what you're saying there. In all the, the, the scandals throughout the decades, there's definitely one common factor. Someone always knew what was happening. Uh, with respect to whistleblowers, it's clearly a very difficult position to come forward. Um, in terms of the financial services industry, you know, there are three main employers. They're all looking to shrink their headcount. It's not like you can have, you know, follow up one employer and move down the road to another one. So if you make this step forward, it's a pretty momentous decision which will have long-lasting impacts on you in your career. You may have to relocate, go abroad. So it's very, very difficult, you know, just to, for someone to come forward and risk being a whistleblower. And also even internally, before you get to the point of whistleblowing, the culture in, in, in big institutions is to reinforce you know, the right type of behaviour and being difficult pointing out problems doesn't tend to associate you with the right type of behaviour. So like all big systems, they tend to be self-reinforcing. So we need a safe access for people who have genuine significant issues to be able to come forward and have protections. And if they're proven, some incentive, because there may well be, irrespective of the secrecy, negative consequences to their career. Yeah, and uh, can you just explain to me how this is financed in the US and how you would propose to finance it here if it was operational? Is it polluter pays? Is that yeah. how it works? That's how it works, exactly. Um, just to be clear in terms of our proposal, like the US, you don't have to be working in the firm to be a whistleblower. You, you can, of course, be working in the firm. You could be a customer who's been badly impacted, Indeed. or you could have, be neither a customer. You're just someone who understands and, and uh, realises there is wrongdoing, and you can inform the regulatory authorities. Once that whistleblowing complaint is, is lodged, then in terms of it's thoroughly investigated, and if there are the wrongdoing is proven, then substantial fines can be levied against the wrongdoing firms. Uh, the SEC in the US has levied fines in excess of $1 billion uh, since 2012. And they have empirical evidence, in their views, that the system works uh, perfectly well uh, and they strongly support it and encourage it. So therefore, if there was a firm, you know, found to be doing significant wrongdoing, the central bank should levy significant fines against them. I think bad actors need to be fined out of existence in, in the sector. Uh, and therefore, in terms of 
a portion of the fine and only a portion goes to the whistleblower and the rest can then go to help, you know, pay for the, the, the expensive cost of regulation in, in the financial services sector. Uh, the cap in the US is 30%. Uh, I, that is unlimited, and the, there has been awards as high as two hundred million dollars, which sounds excessive in any man's language. Certainly, in, in Ireland, if there was a, a cap on the, on the actual final amount or fixed amount, that that would be reasonable. But I think a, a proportional approach in terms of thirty percent of the fines levied seems perfectly fair and appropriate. So, what's the next steps on this for you? Where do you okay. take this from here? Okay, we're starting the process now in terms of you know getting you know drawing attention of you know TDs, uh, and that's what we approach. We'll be writing out to the the Minister of Finance, all the members of the Rectus uh, Committee on um, Finance, Public Affairs, etc., and we're tr- trying to point out in terms of look the level of public support behind our proposal is clear and overwhelming. Um, it's self-financing. It'll definitely lead to improved behaviour, and we want then to get as many people involved in our campaign. We have an online petition on our website at www.impartial.ie. We're asking as many people to, to sign that online petition if you support our proposal. Um, we're also asking people to contact their, their local TD. Again, if they contact, contact us at info at impartial.ie with a draft letter they can send to their local TD. And we're looking people to connect on social media, LinkedIn, and effectively get some momentum behind this. If we want this to be enacted, we have to change the narrative. We don't need to be asked the question, why should we be implementing this? The question needs to be changed to why aren't we implementing this? So we're starting that campaign now and looking forward to seeing what level of support we get for it. Well, Vincent, thank you very much for taking the time to come in and explain it all to us. It's something I think that we, we certainly need to think more strategically about in the future. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Vincent Digby, Managing Director at Impartial Financial Advice. Vincent, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You're welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were looking at the issue of whistleblowers in the financial services sector. And indeed, it was a whistleblower who first raised concerns about a new blood testing device called the Edison at a company called Theranus. A series of damning exposés followed and it all culminated in a Californian court ruling this week that saw its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, facing a jail sentence for decades. We're joined now by Rupert Neal. He's the Guardian Wealth Correspondent. Rupert, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Now, we'll talk about the fall of Elizabeth Holmes in a moment, but you might take us through the rise, first of all. Who is Elizabeth Holmes and what was her big idea? So her idea was to revolutionise blood testing. So she got the idea because both her her mum and her grandmother are all afraid of needles and would faint at the sight of blood as well. Um, so her, her idea was you just uh, prick your finger and on a little teeny few drops of blood, you could test for loads of conditions, pregnancy, lots of diseases like that, instead of having to draw blood in the needle and, and take so much blood. And obviously blood testing that way, the traditional way is expensive. And this way could be a lot cheaper because you could do it in a lot more locations and you wouldn't have to have a nurse and all that sort of thing. So the idea was it would change blood testing forever and make loads of money. Yeah, now she she was a very ambitious person with a fairly audacious um, 
character. I read in your piece this week, age just nine, she wrote a letter to her father declaring that she really wanted, what she really wanted out of life was to discover something new, something that mankind didn't know was possible to do. I don't know about everybody else, but at age nine, I was probably just interested in Lego. Um, But she did have a character that managed to convince a lot of very senior business people to part with their money. It's incredible, really, how ambitious her tenacity at such a long age. And she comes from this sort of really academic family and her great, great, great grandfather invented a new sort of yeast that Mm. transformed baking. And that is said to have been something that motivated her to sort of follow in those family's footsteps and come up with her, her own invention. I mean, that, like you say, that's audacious for someone to do at nine, but also at 19, when she was in the first year of university in America, she came up with the first building blocks of this blood testing idea in the basement of her house she was sharing with friends. And then she convinced her parents that they should take all the money out of the trust fund that they'd save for her education and start her business instead. And they did. So that's where her first money came. And she hired a lab and her first staff with this money that her parents had saved to send her to university. Now, her journey then reminds me a little bit about um, the story of Adam Newman and the WeWork um, progression. You remember where investors were essentially buying into the cult of the CEO and they they seemed to pay very little attention to what was going on around the regulatory and, and operational side of the business. But a whistleblower... Tyler Schultz, who came forward, was was successful eventually in exposing what was going on behind the scenes. Could you talk to us a little bit about what happened there? There's this culture, it seems, in Silicon Valley of fake it till you make it, Mm. it's called. People will continue trying to get money and telling people that, you know, their new invention can can do, you know, whatever it is, change the world, even when they actually aren't quite there yet. But at the same time, investors sort of allow this to happen because, you know, they might have, you know, lots of investors had concerns about Theranos, like they did about WeWork, but they have to sort of juggle two things of, you know, we're concerned this company might not be doing what it says, but it could do it. And what they're scared of is the fear of missing out. Like, what if they missed out on the next Apple or the next Facebook? So in a way, they're complicit in allowing this to go ahead. Yeah, it's very much um, a story of its time when investors seem to be chasing the creation of the next Steve Jobs or, or Jeff Bezos. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Rupert Neat of The Guardian. He's their wealth correspondent and we're talking about the case of Elizabeth Holmes. Now, I just want to um, move forward a little bit to the case itself and the outcome. Could you just talk to our listeners about what actually happened this week in that Californian court and what the, the judgment was? Yeah, so she was found guilty of four of the 11 counts on wire fraud or conspiracy to commit wire fraud. So she hasn't actually been found guilty of mistreating patients or of this technology not working. That's what right. The, been... the, the judgments were on the investor side rather than the, the patients. And I think in the three where they couldn't, the, the, the remaining three, they couldn't actually come up with a... Uh, um, an agreed verdict so so there was no judgment on those three yeah so it is sort of all on this the only way the only things that have gone through is on the the financial side of it and it, that is sort of saying that she has defrauded investors so she'd promised them 
what the company could do but she knew at the time that it wasn't true mm. um, and this led to you know when it was all all this stuff came out following all these investigations and whistleblowers and investigative journalism by the wall street journal suddenly investors got spooked and the company's value collapsed from you know a high of nine billion dollars to nothing mm. um, and then all these investors like rupert murdoch and Henry Kissinger, Larry Ellison, they were all invested in this and they all lost you know, virtually all their money that they had invested. Yeah, and Senator George Schultz as well, whose grandson yeah. was, was ultimately to, to be the one who exposed the wrongdoing to the, the Wall Street Journal. What, um, Rupert, in your view, is the effect that this trial, the case itself and the verdict could have on Silicon Valley? How do you think it'll, it'll go down there? Would it affect how they they operate and that entrepreneurial spirit that exists in Silicon Valley. You'd think it would have a big effect and, you know, people would be a lot more cautious in the future. But I guess they've got to then weigh up the, is it better to be cautious uh, and miss something or will they still take a risk? Because look at how much money you could have made if you were, you know, in on the early days of of Apple or Amazon or, or Facebook. I think maybe some investors would still take that risk because if you can get back one euro, get back a thousand, maybe you'd still take that risk. It's just that that the spirit in in Silicon Valley and their their rallying call is often go quick and break things. But like when you you apply that to something as serious as people's health as she was trying to do, it has much broader, broader ethical considerations, you know, and you'd wonder whether or not there will be any consequence uh, really on foot of of what this case has exposed, I suppose, in terms of a lack of regulatory regime around people investing in new startups. Definitely. And that's sort of the saddest thing, I think, in this is, you know, we're talking about the investors, but we're, we haven't talked about the people that have been given the wrong test results mm. and the sort of huge impact that's had on their lives. You know, there's some women that gave evidence to say that you know, using this blood test, they were told that they were miscarrying their baby. But actually, they weren't. The test was just wrong and they still had a healthy pregnancy. And other people were told that they were HIV positive when they weren't. And what do you think is going to happen to her now? I know you can't judge what will happen within the courts and and how much her sentence will be. But she seemed to be very stoic, even throughout a very lengthy court case, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, she's a very interesting personality. You know, there's lots of... uh, Lots of things about that that make it interesting. Like if you watch her speaking, she puts on the low baritone voice and she dresses in a black turtleneck often. Um, so I think each of these counts that she's been found guilty on could be 20 years in jail. That's going to be quite a... I mean, that's obviously tough change for anyone going to jail, but going from being a billionaire to being in jail, that's, you know, that's quite some fall, right? Yeah, it's certainly some fall from grace. And yeah, I had noticed that her her idol was Steve Jobs. But unlike Steve Jobs, her promise was built on a technology that she knew herself didn't work. And so in that respect, she was, as you said earlier, playing with people's lives. Um, Rupert, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. I'd recommend that... um, Uh, listeners who are interested in this story can uh, look at what Rupert has written about it in the past and thank you so much for for taking the time to join with us today Rupert. Thanks for having me.
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We've got a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. And my thanks to the Taking Stock team of Michael McCarthy, Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoso on sound. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling.